Strong voices. It's not just about one state. It's not just about one community. It's about all of our communities. The issues that face Indigenous peoples around the world sit at the heart of the questions that we're asking about the future of our political order. I am here and now, and I speak my language. I practice my cultural essence of me. What we do need is a more critical race consciousness in this country, a preparedness to talk about race, to talk about the way in which racialized logics are inscribed upon our bodies, and to critically examine them in order to change it. The government's changed, but we're going to be still here. We're always going to be still here. We've been here for 65,000 years, and I don't think we're going to go anywhere. What the system still struggles with is this collaboration with First Nations people. A strong voice is an Aboriginal voice. Hello, good morning, and welcome to Strong Voices. We're coming to you from the Calm Radio Studios here on Aranda Country in Central Australia, here in Ubuntu Alice Springs, where it's a little bit wet and overcast at the moment. I have to admit I did doubt whether or not we'd get the rain, but we have got it. Great to see it here in Alice Springs. Uh, we're, of course, as well coming to you right across the country through Vast Channel 911. We're on Aiken FM 100.5 here in Alice Springs. And we're also, of course, coming to you via our website at karma.com.au. Today is uh, Monday, the 23rd of September. My name's Kyle Dowling. I'm your host for Strong Voices. Great to have your company today. Coming up on the program, we're going to be hearing about the uh, Senate inquiry into the cashless debit card, which could be expanded to the Northern Territory. We're going to be bringing you some of the audio from what's been uh, discussed at that inquiry. Also, the strength of Aboriginal women town campers in Alice Springs is on display as part of a new documentary which will be showing some of the work done by those grassroots leaders. We're also going to be heading to Victoria to hear about new funding which has been provided to an Aboriginal community-controlled organisation which strives to assist Aboriginal people experiencing domestic violence. Uh, We're going to be hearing about what that funding is going to be doing and... uh, some of the additional things that need to happen in order to address some of the challenges that uh, people are seeing in the state. We're as well going to be hearing the latest in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news from across the country as well. But before then, we are going to go to a break and then we'll be right back. Hi, my name's Darren Pedersen and you're listening to Cam Radio, Strong Voices on 18 FM. We're going to be heading into our first story here on Strong Voices now. A Senate committee hearing into the expansion of the cashless debit card is currently underway at Northern Territory Parliament House in Darwin. Olga Havnan, Chief Executive Officer of the Danila Dilba Health Service in Darwin, is a prominent Aboriginal leader, advocate and rights campaigner. Ms Havnan explains the impacts of the Basics card, which was first introduced across the Northern Territory during the federal intervention on Aboriginal people. Well, I guess for most people who are on a basics card, it's been difficult for them to know what the balances are on their basics card. Um, The fact that you can only use the basics cards, um, you know, for for limited purchases, which, you know, we understand why that is. But, for example, if you're needing to go and purchase things for a school camp or a school excursion, (coughs) it becomes problematic. in that move over to a cashless debit card, we were told at the briefing, oh, well, this will help people to better be able to see uh, what their balances are on their cards, that there will be a lower sort of fee that's charged when you access that card for, you know, your balance information and so on. Um, to some degree, yes, that sounds on the face of it a better idea. 
But, I mean, how much longer does this go on for? Mm. This was rolled out on Aboriginal people here back in 2007. Um, people who were already spending, <coughs> I would say, in most households, 100% of their money on the basics and the essentials for life. Remote communities here, by the way, by and large for most of them, have, don't have alcohol mm. sales. So it's not like you can go you know, down to the local supermarket and buy your carton of beer or whatever. Only those people who have... Um, Alcohol permits are able to have access to alcohol. So by and large, people in central Australia, for example, there are no um, alcohol outlets or you can't, don't have a licensed club, you don't have takeaway sales. Why are we continuing to manage the money of people who actually aren't out there doing that stuff? Um, I think the thing that was completely missed in, in the rollout of this intervention was that we have large numbers of Aboriginal men of working age who are not in the labour force. So that's men between the ages of 15 and 65. If you're not in the labour force, you're not registered in any form of employment, education, you don't receive any new start payments. So I think Mel Bruff kind of got it right when he identified that there were high levels of humbugging, people who were receiving income being harassed for money by extended family members. But he missed the mark completely about the disengagement <coughs> of men. And I don't think that's been addressed as yet. So when you've got 60% of men of working age with no income, what do we think the consequences are going to be? So sorry, just come back to the question. It was about the basics card and the limitations, and um, uh, you're suggesting that perhaps the alcohol consumption wasn't an issue. And obviously, we're trying to take you know the the aim behind this is ensuring that essentials are being purchased rather than money being spent on gambling, alcohol, um, and and those um, issues, the, those products that aren't actually beneficial to general family life. And most of the reports that we're seeing and reports that have been done over the 12 years are reporting reductions of 40 to 41% reduction in use of alcohol. How do you explain those differences in the figures then? Well, it depends on which sites you're referring to as to where you would have seen those changes. What I think has made the biggest change here in the Territory has been the banned drinkers register, not the basics card. So that is, if you're charged with an alcohol-related offence, there is a complete prohibition on your ability to purchase alcohol. That has directly benefited people, particularly, say, in Alice Springs, where it's had a significant positive impact. That's, I mean, you, you mentioned things like stigmatised and shame and embarrassment, um, more than having a cashless debit card that's now being able to be used at 900,000 sites rather than 16,000, not fluorescent green like the basics card, um, less identifiable than something like an alcohol ban card? Well, you don't get a card if you're banned from alcohol. It just means that you need to purchase alcohol. If you want to purchase alcohol in the Territory, you have to produce some form of ID. Mm -hmm. And on the banned alcohol registers, they keep the name and so on of the people who have been banned by the courts. The thing I'd say about the banned alcohol uh, register is that it didn't just apply to Aboriginal people, it's also applied to anybody. So, that's, so the cashless debit card and income management also applies more broadly? Well, that's now. This is sort of 19, uh, sorry, 12 years later when it was first rolled out, it was targeted squarely at Aboriginal people. But we're um, looking at now, and so looking at going forward into the cashless debit card, it doesn't just apply to Aboriginal people. There are sites, including in Hinkler, that, did that is a non-Indigenous population. Yep, we did predict this, actually. If you go back to the original comments we made when it was first um, introduced, it was always my view that this was a trial, do it to Aboriginal people, the broader community won't complain because it's only targeting Aboriginal people. 
and then it would be used as a way of sort of rolling it out more widely to other people on welfare. Um, the problem with it is it's a blanket's nature. And I'll give you the example of that. I have an aunt who at the time was living out on one of the outstations. Um, fortunately for her, she had moved back into town because she was needing better access to health services. This was a woman who had worked all her life. She was not a drinker, not a smoker, um, had paid her taxes, uh, who was going to be potentially subjected to income management. When I explained that to her, she was just completely stunned with disbelief. And I know personally of many other Aboriginal people in similar circumstances who have worked, who have raised their kids, they're not drinkers, they're not smokers, they get targeted with this income quarantining card, I don't care what colour it is, the card that is, uh, the fact is that you're being treated as though that you're incapable of managing your own affairs. Mm. Now, you know, if it was done in a more targeted way, that is, people who clearly have problems with drug and alcohol, who are failing mm. to meet their responsibility as <clears throat> parents or caring for kids properly, then by all means use it as a measure in much the same way that I suppose income management was used under the Cape York welfare trial. Um, that was a more targeted think, and nuanced I approach. You, I think you'll find it, and just caution, you know, mindful of time, um, that if you do look at, at the bulk of the people that are compulsorily put onto this uh, this measure are long-term long welfare payment recipients and those that are falling under particular age thresholds that are... Uh, so how, does, how do Aboriginal people who don't fall under those things, who don't have dependents, mm. who don't drink, who don't have a record of drug abuse, how do they get off the system? Mm. That's the bigger question for us. We're just moving through, uh, before we go through to the senators on the phone, just one quick question, if I could, through you, Chair. Um, in the last three years, um, we've seen about $175 million of welfare dollars, of taxpayer dollars that have been paid in welfare payments, have been spent in the Territory through small businesses on essential items, as opposed to gambling and alcohol and drugs. What kind of benefit do you think that that's had for communities and the businesses in them as that money has been, sent on, been spent on essential items and put through businesses in local communities? Um, could I just ask a quick question? I'm not being you know, disrespectful here. I, I just haven't heard that sort of data or that information and I wonder where it comes from. Because the question in my mind would be, say, in a town like Darwin, I would want to see what's been the difference then in the rate of... Um, money put through poker machines and certainly through the casino. Because if you go to the casino on any given day, I'll guarantee you the vast majority of people there playing the poker machines were Aboriginal people. Well, they're obviously not using the money that's been quarantined on the cards then. Well, that. So they're still using, because the money that's been quarantined then is being used for essential services as opposed to being put through poker machines and being put through other gambling measures and alcohol. So, I'd I mean, are really you seeing... I'd be really keen to see that sort of data because I think that would be interesting. Mm. Yeah. And a benefit, do you think, or do you think there would be a benefit to communities to seeing that increase in money being spent on essential services rather than being put through pokies? Well, I think the point I'd make is that most people, when you're on a limited income, you spend 100% of your money, by and large for most people, on those essentials. And I think women in particular, you know, um, are really cognizant of their responsibilities for kids and families. And if you go out to Casuarina or to any of the shopping centres here on any given day, you'll see women and families out there buying stuff, you know, Coles, Kmart, Woolworths, whatever. That's always been the case. I think what we've had has been a, perhaps a, a core of people who've had serious drug addiction, um, drug and alcohol problems, 
gambling perhaps is a much more complex thing and I'll deal with that separately, but it seems to me that if you'd had targeted services for those people um, who really needed the support, who still don't get it, that would have been a more effective and efficient way of doing things. In terms of the issues very strongly focused on child wellbeing, some of the other trials are more focused around gambling, drugs and alcohol, etc. You mentioned that the level of the number of children in terms of going into child protection has that what's happened there has that from from an outsider's viewpoint it looks like it's been going up and certainly there's you know the issues around youth justice don't seem to have got any better either the data from territory families on the rates of child protection notifications and substantiations um, has peaked at around 26,000 notifications um, but what we've found in the most recent, I think in this last year, some of that data looks like it may be starting to plateau. It's not clear at this point. But in terms of the numbers of children being removed, there's still about 1,200 children in out-of-home care. Um, so on average, about 300 children who come into the system each year and 300 children who may exit or transition out of the child protection system. With respect to the youth justice impacts, I guess that has more to do with the changes that have been made um, at a jurisdictional level with respect to alternative um, diversionary programs, um, supported bail accommodation and those sorts of things that I think have started to have at least a positive impact in keeping the numbers of kids um, out of actual youth detention. However, they are still unacceptably high. And the point that I would make about that is that so many of those children are children who have been removed from families they're in out-of-home care who end up in juvenile justice, and of those, about 60% are church families' kids in, out of, in their juvenile justice system. We think that there is probably a high likelihood that those children also have profound disabilities, at least one serious cognitive or developmental impairment, very much like the Banksia Hill study in Western Australia. So this is all very complex, it's difficult, mm. it's challenging. But I think the point to be made here is that, as I say, 80% of the Territory's population live out bush, gross overcrowding, poor access to services. We haven't fundamentally addressed those problems, and I don't think things are likely to change unless governments are willing to commit to addressing those issues. Thanks for your introductory statements this morning. I just want to go to some of the comments um, that you made there too, Ms Hevenen, around uh, compulsory income management. It hasn't worked. so. What does? What will work? I have two examples prior to the intervention. One was that Tanganjira had a voluntary system where people on welfare benefits, rather than receiving a cash payment, could receive it in the form of a voucher, which allowed them then to have greater control over that um, money. That was a voluntary system. It was working incredibly well, and people felt empowered by being able to do that themselves. Um, Tanganjira also provided banking services for people at Tanganjira council premises. The other was a project I was involved with uh, while I was working with the Fred Hollows Foundation in the Jarwin communities of Barunga, Beerswick and Manyolalak, um, where women had come together as a group to talk about how to have school breakfast and lunch programs and to make sure that kids had food, you know, before attending school. They made that decision as a result of a series of community meetings and women collectively decided that they wanted to write to the department to ask for a certain portion of their money to be deducted in order to pay for that 
breakfast and lunch program. That was a voluntary program that they'd come up with themselves as a community sort of level response. We did manage to get that program to run and to operate for a period of about 12 months and then was subjected to the rollout of income management. So the things that those women had put in place themselves were completely overridden and it was done as a, a compulsory system. Um, I can't tell you how those women felt about what had happened to them when they themselves were exercising what they saw as being their own responsibilities. They found a local sort of solution. Um, to have all of that power and decision-making taken away from them and being told that you're irresponsible, you can't look after your kids, you don't feed them properly, was an absolute slap in the face to those women. So does, but so does voluntary income management have a role then? Potentially it does. I mean, voluntary income management is no different to somebody setting up perhaps a direct debit on your bank account. You know, if you have control about what you set up, what you put in place, what you choose to change, absolutely. To your comments around the uh, the banking in the communities, it's just in relation to, you mentioned the traditional credit union um, and you also mentioned the communities like Wadir and Manangrida, which are our largest ones with populations of over well over 2,000, some of them going up to 3,000, yeah. Um, so what, what is it that you'd like this committee to look at in terms of those financial services or lack thereof? Well, I think off the back of the Banking uh, Royal Commission, which in some ways looked at bank misconduct, what it didn't kind of go to was whether or not there was a social responsibility for banks to make sure that everybody had access to banking and financial services in the same way as we provide other sort of essential services to people, be it health or education or whatever. Um, it would seem to me that it would not be that expensive for banks to actually come together and work out a system collaboratively about making sure that people would have access to financial counsellors, that people could own and manage their bank accounts. Um, that's something that I think gives people much more control and sense of you know, well-being in your lives. If you can manage your own money, um, you have some control about what you do, where you go. Would you be able to just provide for the committee any examples that you've received either through uh, AMSANT, Mr Patterson, or through Janella Dilba, or even through the land councils, of individual um, examples around that financial situation uh, in, in the remote communities. I think it's important for the committee to understand just how tough that tough it is. I mean, I'd go back a few steps. I mean, historically, before we had electronic banking systems, people used to receive, you know, their Centrelink checks in the mail, and that in itself was a bit of a nightmare. And Centrelink payments used to be paid regularly on fixed days each fortnight. So there's been more flexibility in the... Um, welfare system, if you like, and that it's allowed people to access their payments on different days of a week or a fortnight. Um, to be able to get them electronically, I think, has been a positive benefit. But if you don't have access to, say, a local ATM machine or you have to rely on, say, the traditional credit union, and they've tried to do, you know, to fill this gap, but the cost of going to check your bank balance, for example, uh, was costing people something like between 5 and $10. So if you're expecting your payment into your account today, quite often people would go to the ATM multiple times and theoretically you could actually be billed, you know, $25, 30, $30 just to see what your bank balance is. I mean, it's ridiculous that the poorest people on, you know, welfare payments were being charged those sorts of bank fees. So having a banking system that provided access to 
being able to know what your balance is on your account without char being charged you know, those horrific fees, being able to go to an ATM and withdraw cash without paying $3.50 or whatever it is that you pay for it. I mean, this is ludicrous. Mm. They're the kinds of banking services that I'm talking about. But I also think, too, in, if you go back to the intervention in its early days, there were an army of people that all dutifully went off out bush to teach people how to you know, create household budgets. Well, you know, that's all dissipated and to what end? And the thing that I think continues to be missing is the basic information for people so that you can better manage your household incomes. Um, in households where you have high rates of overcrowding and you have a tenancy that's in the name of one person, it was leaving that one person in the household responsible for things like the power bill. So Aboriginal people are very good at coming up with alternatives so that you have a fair and equitable way of managing those sorts of things. That seems to have sort of been lost sight of as well. Um, you know, so there's multiple complexities and challenges, but, but essentially if you can't manage your own money, you've got no control at all over your life. Mm. I mean, can you imagine women being dependent on their husbands for their family income? I mean, that'd go down a treat. So I might just, just finish with um, uh, just what are your views on the fact that if this legislation goes through as it stands, the Minister will have the power to quarantine 100 per cent of an income under this legislation? Why don't we just go back to ration cards? That was audio from the Senate committee hearing into the expansion of the cashless debit card, which is currently underway at the Northern Territory Parliament House in Darwin. We're going to be hearing soon from Sherlene uh, Campbell from the Tungajira Women's Family Safety Group talking about a uh, documentary that's been done recently. But before then, we're going to go to a track and then we'll be right back. Hey, hey, this is Shawnee Tilbury and you listen to Strong Voice on Karma Radio. Woo! That's right, you're listening to Strong Voices. We're going to head into our next story now. Well, uh, a new documentary called Not Just Numbers was recently uh, premiered at the uh, Darwin International Film Festival. And the documentary was looking at sharing the story and journey of uh, Alice Springs Aboriginal Women Town Campus and their uh, efforts towards combating things like domestic violence. I recently had an opportunity to speak with the co-coordinator of the Tungajira Women's Family Safety Group and director of the documentary, Shirlene Campbell. Well, uh, Shirlene, it's great to have you back on Calm Radio. Thank you. Well, uh, there have been some exciting news recently in regards to the Tungajira Women's Family Safety Group. But just before we get into talking a bit about that documentary, for those who may be unfamiliar, tell us a little bit about the, the Tungajira Women's Family Safety Group. What's it all about? What do you do? The Tungajira Women's Family Safety Group is the co-governance group of women from each of the 12 town camps. The, the one, uh, I mean, basically those women were leaders in the camp before they were elected as presidents and, yeah. Well, what it is is that the Tungandjura Family Violence Prevention Program, we are the women that actually were the umbrella of the program, the Tungandjura Family Violence Prevention Program. So the other programs that sit under us is the Men's Behavioural Change, that supporting and looking after the men that are actually wanting to make that change within themselves. And we also have the Men's Outreach and Referral Service, that's called the MORS, and that sits within the Men's Behavioural Chain. What that one is, is that that's also supporting men that are going through the court system and wanting to sort of not be in that remand situation. 
And then we also have the domestic violence specialist children's services, and that sort of looks after our youths as well. And, you know, they're also experiencing their own um, family and domestic violence at their kind of age in society that we're living in today. And, and for you, why, why did you actually want to get in, involved with the group? For me personally is that I've lost a few family members and, you know, been on a tan camp. I could hear and feel the frustration coming from our elderly ladies and our women in general and, you know, no one wasn't listening to them. So I thought, well, you know, knowing that I'm going to be a young mum growing up, my kids on a tan camp, I needed to do something within that change. So I actually got the approval and having that deep listening was my important role as well so to have that deep listening I actually understand and the ways that our mob work and the way we live and yeah just wanting to you know have that voice for our town camp women and children but also supporting our men's as well and help getting them to have their voices heard as well because you know we've grew up with intergenerational trauma since the um since the colonisation and the massacres that we've been through. Now, the, that work that you've been talking about, the, the story of the organisation, it's been the subject of a, of a documentary which was uh, premiered recently. Uh, tell us a little bit about that documentary and, and how that sort of came about. The documentary is basically based on town camp people live life and their future ahead. So what that is is sort of t- um, talks about family and domestic violence, how hard it was before and you know how we could come to terms of talking to talking around family and domestic violence let alone sexual assault as well so yeah having having that and putting that towards mums can dads can program that we're actually doing at the moment um project that yeah mums can dads can and what that one is is that it builds on the work that is currently being carried out by our Tunganjira Family Violence Prevention Program. Mums Can, Dads Can is a project that is informed by town camp community members and in order to address unhelpful stereotype and develop key alternative messages that are currently appropriate and truly resonate with the Alice Springs town camps and the Central Australian Aboriginal community around. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, I understand that the documentary is called Not Just Numbers... Yeah, um, not just numbers. Um, that's part of talking about how we advocate and how we starting to, you know, wanting to have that voice. It's around the visibility that our um, Indigenous women's face. You know, there's not much good stories coming out in the media. It's always negative and, you know, a lot of our role models, our in- Indigenous women today, we do have a lot of those leaders of our own in our own families and like that visibility again, no one doesn't listen. So, you know, having the Tunganjira Women's Family Safety Group, building that relationship towards the media and the social media in general because, you know, we're wanting to change the narrative the way people think of us and teaching the two-way learning of the nuances of that our Aboriginal people live and uses every day. And like, you know, like, I talk about the domestic children specialist service is that our young ones are coming up with new new nuances is that, and it's the, having that deep listening again so listening to those future leaders they're the one who knows their future they can tell where their future is heading so it's that having that deep listening again what, what does it sort of mean to be able to you know have this story out there 
like this and, and, you know, showcasing the amazing work that's being done? For me personally, you know, I think about the future that our kids are going to have and face within the future that they're looking at, you know, just having started being their voices. And for me, you know, I'm just so frustrated. You know, these young ones need their voices. So just, you know, just having our Tongue and Jerry Women's Family Safety Group is sort of having that role model as, as well as that our young ones are looking up to us. And me personally, it's just changing the perspective of the society we live in today and you know getting the non-indigenous people to actually listen to the work that we're doing from grassroots and you know we're wanting to build that relationship to share that two-way learning and and i think you just brought up an, an important point as well in terms of that grassroots knowledge and understanding obviously it's the mob who have the understanding of what what's happening you know within their communities and and what's happening to individuals and stuff like that so it's important that we support these individuals isn't it we've had healthy vibrant lives 180 years ago things have started to turn negative ways so you know having this kind of society in this future you know actually wanting to flip that the narrative and the languages that people are using today and you know not a lot of our mob don't understand literacy and numeracy so it's going back to that deep listening and looking at the nuances that and when I talk about deep listening and the nuances it's not the deep listening just listening it's looking you're watching you're listening and you're actually taking your time as in patient to you know having these directions set forward for you for for that person well definitely I think very great to have that story here now you know on on you know being shared on the big screen and stuff like that uh Charlene, thank you so much for taking time out to speak with us on camera today yeah no i just can't wait to bring it out and um on tv because it's going to be uh, aired on the 25th of november on nitv and we're also doing a personal screening in alice springs during the reclaim the night that was Charlene campbell co-coordinator of the Tungandjura Women's Family Safety Group and director of the uh, Not Just Numbers documentary. We're going to be going to a break now and then we'll be hearing the latest in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news from right across the country. Then after that, we'll have our final story. You're listening to Strong Voices on Calm Radio. (laughs) Well, now it's time for the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news from across the country. Very happy to say that I'm joined by Karma's Paul Wiles. Good morning, Paul. Good morning, Carl, and good morning, listeners. Well, let's start with our first story. I understand you've got one around uh, a South Australian Indigenous Soccer Academy. Yes, uh, the Aboriginal high school students... um involved in the South Australian government's learning program will get a kick, pardon the pun, out of being involved in the state's first Aboriginal soccer academy. Students involved in the the SA Aboriginal Secondary Training Academy can participate in the program as part of their uh, education certificate. So interesting that the new academy will create another avenue for Aboriginal students to join the program and achieve higher education goals, according to the State Premier Stephen Marshall. Uh, In addition to achieving their SACE, students in the academy will have the opportunity to immerse themselves in a globally recognised sport. The academy will run once a week when the school term commences in February 2020. So uh, 
for all the mob who are interested uh, in uh, soccer down in South Australia, football, good way to get involved and to um, contribute towards your SACE. Mm, and that, I think that's an interesting aspect of it because I know obviously we've seen uh, in the past things like different sports usually as a different pathway through university and stuff like that through scholarships and things like that. But I guess, you know, it's again trying to help support those individuals who do want to make a career out of it to, because to, as we know, it, it is a tough cutthroat sport in soccer and very competitive. And, yeah. um, but Australia um, continues to produce some um, world class players. Mm. So uh, always an opportunity. And historically, um, yeah, the mob have uh, played soccer very well. Well, on to our next story now, Paul. I understand you've got one in regards to a language song competition and the school in here in Alice Springs actually uh, got some recognition. Yes, the first languages Australia and ABC Education have selected a record six winners for the 2019 Indigenous Language Song Competition. And now in its fourth year, the competition sees primary and secondary schools from across the country working alongside uh, local communities to translate and perform uh, the Marangamu song into langu- the first languages of their area. Uh, in this year, the International Year of Indigenous Languages, the competition entries were very strong with the judges deciding to award all contributors as well as highlighting six exceptional entries. The winning schools from uh, Mantua, Saturdine Primary School and the other schools, Eleonora State School, Ewell Park Community College, Melaleuca Park Primary School, Bold Park Community School and Baronia Park Public School. They, of course, will know where their schools are. It doesn't say what state or territory. But, um, yeah, congratulations and particularly to Saturdine Primary School. Great to see that support of Indigenous languages there. On that note, Paul, thank you so much for joining us for the news from around the country. Thank you. Strong Voices. We're going to be heading across to Victoria now, where late last week, the Victorian Minister for Corrections, Ben Carroll, announced uh, almost $1.5 million over four years towards uh, Victorian-based Aboriginal community-controlled organisation, Jura. Uh, This morning, I sat down with the CEO of Jura, Internet Braybrook, to discuss what the funding will mean and a bit about the work that uh, Jura does. JIRA is a Victorian-based organisation. We're an Aboriginal community-controlled organisation and we provide culturally safe and holistic and specialist family violence uh, legal services to mostly Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women who are experiencing family violence or have in the past experienced family violence. And um, we're part of a big national network um, where there are several family violence prevention and legal services in Australia. I believe you're in Alice Springs. So there's two in Alice Springs, Carflu and NPY, and then uh, a few in WA and Queensland and New South Wales and South Australia. And we all do similar kind of work, um, but do it in very different ways, obviously, because our communities are so different. Just talking about those differences, what, what are some of the challenges faced by Aboriginal women in Victoria? Aboriginal women are 34 times more likely to be hospitalised for family violence and they're 10 times more likely to die from a violent assault than other women. And we are more likely to have our children removed 
um, for family violence than other women. Um, and also, we are the fastest growing prison population in the country, um, with um, uh, 80% of our women in prison being mothers and 90% of our women in prison having experienced family violence. So the situation is not a very uh, good one for our women in our country today. And we recently saw an announcement from the Corrections Minister, uh, Ben Carroll, in regards to funding for JIRA. Can you talk to us about what that funding is going to do and and how that's going to go towards addressing some of those uh, concerning statistics that we're seeing there? Our Minister, Ben Carroll, announced $1.46 million uh, for JIRA over four years to support Aboriginal women in prison um, at risk of um, being imprisoned and on their release. So we'll have some additional funding to provide legal advice and representation. Now, our areas of law are in family violence, child protection, family law and intervention orders and and compensation for victims of crime. And they're all things that many of the women in prison see us about. I said before that Aboriginal women are more than likely to have their kids removed because of family violence than other women. So much of the legal work that we do with the women in prison is around child protection and much of that is also about getting intervention orders in place when they're released. So that will funding will enable us to also support them once the women are released. We've got our Koori Women's Place here in Victoria um, where we can provide practical support. We can link women into flexible support packages, which is um, financial assistance, basically, from the Victorian government. And that's been really life-changing for the women who have accessed that, not only women coming from prison, but all of um, the women that we support here in Victoria. Are you confident in terms of addressing those issues and, and, and turning around some of these uh, concerning things that we're seeing there? I think this is a step in the right direction to make a real difference. Obviously, there needs to be more of an investment. You know, 1.46 over four years is around about 350 or $380,000, I think, per year. So the, the investment is going to have to be greater than that to to make the difference, especially when we know in Victoria the numbers of Aboriginal women going into prison has increased by 155% in the last five years and also nationally since the Royal Commission in Aboriginal Death and Custody imprisonment rate of Aboriginal women has increased by 248% but the numbers are still low enough to be able to manage and make a difference with the right investment. So this investment that the Victorian government has made to JIRA is a step in the right direction and I guess in my role wearing my national hat as the national chairperson of the National Family Violence Prevention and Legal Services, it would be great to see other state and territory governments um, make a similar investment to our member organisations around the country because of, you know, family violence is both a cause and consequence of women's imprisonment. As we know, governments come and go and as a consequence we do see programs and policies being constantly scrapped or changed and and redesigned and things like that when we're talking about uh you know the imprisonment rates the things like you know the life expectancy gap there's there's so many things that we still need to improve Do, do you think that uh 
the community-controlled organisations need to be given that greater level of support like you were talking about in terms of addressing these issues to help prevent those sort of cycles where we're seeing programs constantly change all the time? In order to make a difference to the way things are for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in our country today, we need to see an investment and commitment to Aboriginal community control, our self-determination, and it can't just be one-off funding that ends in, you know, one year, two years, three years. This is long-term, and that's the only way that things will be made right for our people by investing into Aboriginal community control. With this funding, we'll be able to support more Aboriginal women from getting caught up in that vicious cycle, that revolving door and, you know, landing back in prison. I might add too that in Victoria, and I know this is the case nationally, that there are so many of our women that sit on remand for very long periods of time and unsentenced they are and often don't receive a custodial sentence or where they do, it's, it's less than what the remand period they have served is. And... So we're able to then, with this funding, support women when they're coming out to get back into their house, get their kids back, um, support them to get some work. Our Korea Women's Place does resume writing workshops and so we've been able to do that with women. So we'll be able to break that vicious cycle. That was the Chief Executive Officer of Jura, Antoinette Braybrook, ending that uh, story there. That's going to conclude Strong Voices for this Monday morning. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thanks to all our special guests who join us on the program. If you missed any of the stories or wanted to listen back to the show, uh, I'll be posting up a podcast of the episode of Strong Voices up on our SoundCloud, on Karma SoundCloud. And uh, we'll be posting up those stories up to the Karma website as well at karma.com.au. Make sure you also check out our social media as well, our uh, Facebook and Twitter. Strong voices. Which are